You want me to just wing it? Yeah. Okay. You are listening. You are listening to Composer Quest. Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran. And in this show, I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists to bring you musical inspiration and practical composing tips. In today's episode, I talk with a fellow Minnesotan songwriter and podcaster. Jonathan Runman shares his words of wisdom from his journey as both a solo songwriter and as a hired gun instrumentalist. He shares some tips on arranging for organ and accordion. My rule for keyboards is like never play the third. Huh. I always feel like the soloist's job is to play the third, the vocalist's job is to sing the third. But when I'm playing accordion and Hammond, it's just one five, one five all day long. Years ago we spoke your words and joined you in your singing. Jonathan's songs have appeared on the CBS Morning News, NPR, and the Ellen DeGeneres Show thanks to his niche songwriting topics like insomnia and wearing glasses. But Jonathan has since had a revelation in how he writes his lyrics. I almost felt like I was a reporter. Like, hey, now I'm going to describe the world I'm in. But I guess what I didn't realize at the time was that normal people want heart. <laughs> you know? And, but I'm, I'm not so concerned with heart because I'm sort of a nerd and I don't, I don't miss it myself, just speaking as a listener. All this and more coming up. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. Shout out to one of my new patrons, Vic Wozniak, who's a bassist and saxophonist in Cloverdale, British Columbia. He's in a jazz fusion band up there, and you can check out their music at resonance.ca. That's R-E-Z-O-N-A-N-S dot C-A. Thanks, Vic. Thanks also to my patron at the $3 per episode level, Harry Gibson, which means he gets a jingle. Harry Gibson is a guitar guy, Australia is where he resides, riding on a kangaroo on his way to school. Every day he learns to speak. Maybe one day he will learn in Japan. And another island in the sea he could be. Guitar in Japanese. 
If you're interested in becoming a Composer Quest patron, visit patreon.com slash charlie to check out the reward levels. Like I said, $3 per episode will get you a custom jingle too. Thanks for considering it. Alright, now let's get on to my talk with Jonathan Rundman. Jonathan, thanks for coming over. You're welcome. Um, yeah. I had a really fun time on your podcast with you and Don. Yeah. Your wife. This is the first time that any guest of ours has, uh, the tables have turned. Yeah. You know, or uh, then we turn around and be the guest on theirs. <laughs> yeah. It's so cool. I can, always... Hopefully that'll happen more. I mean, if we guess we have other podcasters on. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, yeah, you've been gigging and touring since you were 18, you Yes, said? yep, that's right. It's my 25th anniversary right now, actually. Oh. Maybe 26th. But I, I just tell people 25th because it's a nice uh, number with a five at the end. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, like, you as a performer and songwriter and stuff, what, what kind of things do you do to collaborate with other musicians? Because obviously you've worked with a ton of people over yeah. the course of that. Yep. Well, in my 25 years, it's really been a journey of increased collaboration in a giant crescendo, really. Because when I started out, part of my whole excitement or drive was to do everything alone. And so I would write all the songs and play all the instruments and record and engineer everything and mix everything and book everything. And like, I just did everything myself and I sort of it wasn't it's not like I prided myself on that but it was part of the I thought it was so much fun that it was my driving force yeah and then as I've gradually over time I involved more and more people in the process and I suppose it started in the studio where I involved other people to be the engineer or I invo- involved a drummer to play the drums because that's the thing I'm not the best at you know and then but you still do play drums, too, But right? I do play drums, yeah. But I would start inviting other people to do other things. And then by the time I was 10 years into it, I realized that what I wanted to do for the first time was have a producer. So then in 2004, I approached a, a producer who I love and who was a huge influence on me and someone I really respect. And I turned over... 100% of control of that particular record to, to this person, hmm. which I'd never, ever done before. And I told this person, You're, I want you to do everything. Like, you choose the session players. You, I gave him a whole bunch of songs, like 20-some songs. And he's, I told him, you pick the 10 that go on the record. And you tell me how to sing stuff. You give me vocal direction. And it was awesome and the guy Walter Salas Humara produced that particular record and he was incredible and the album turned out great and it was the best record I ever made and it got the most attention that I ever got and so I learned wow I should have been working with more people earlier I should have given away some power earlier on Hmm. and ever since then I've been all about giving away the power and then I was uh, fairly recently, like from 2010 to 2013, I was in a band for the first time in my life with another person. And we played 
Finnish folk music. I'd never been in a band before, so I had to learn what's it like to be 50-50 creatively and financially and whatever with, an, with, with a band member. And now my most recent album that I'm promoting right now, which came out in 2015, is called Look Up. And that's another one where I realized I want to have a producer again. And then uh, I even restricted myself even more on this album because I had more co-writers. And then I also told my producer, uh, Matt Patrick, here in Minneapolis, uh, I told him, don't let me play guitar. Hmm. I only want to play the keyboards uh, just because I wanted to sound different than I'd ever sounded before. So we brought in other people to play guitars. So I'm I'm just binging on on collaboration and community and giving away power that's my that's where i'm at cool the pendulum swung (laughs) (laughs) so when you're writing on the keyboard versus on guitar yeah how did were you actually writing the songs on the keyboards yep yeah that's a that's another thing that's totally different about this new music that i'm supporting right now is um primarily in my career i wrote all the songs on the guitar and then i would hit the road and play them on the guitar and I did that out of necessity, I guess, because on tour, it's too hard to bring keyboards around. And, you know, it's yeah. just like guitar is just a necessity, you know, yeah. you throw it in the trunk and you put it on the airplane and go for it. But what happened was with the keyboard, it's the keyboard is my first instrument. So when I was a little nine year old, I started taking piano lessons. And so even as a guitarist, I my brain thinks keyboards all the time, even when I'm playing something that's not a keyboard. Hmm. And when I was in the Finnish folk music band, I became kind of a serious keyboardist again because part of my job in that band was the, as an accompanist was to play piano and harmonium and accordion. And, mm. and I fell in love with the keyboards again in, as, as a 40-year-old after sort of ignoring the keyboard really for many years. And so I think what happened is after that experience, I ended up writing tons of songs on this new album on the keyboards because it was really influenced by the Nordic folk music even though it's now I'm writing pop music, mm-hmm. but my songs ended up very different than the ones I ever write as a guitarist. There's more chords, there's more changes, the melodies are richer, the changes are more sophisticated, there's more inversions, there's more uh, sevens and more yeah. minors. And Whereas with guitar, I tend to either kind of revert more to like a garage band kind of punk ethic where it's two chords just getting bashed over and over again. Or it's kind of a folky Simon and Garfunkel sort of thing. Sure. So you were just saying that you're starting to get hired for gigs as a keyboardist now. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. In, in Throughout my career, actually, I've really enjoyed being a hired gun instrumentalist with other artists. And I found that the the gigs that I would get as a, as a sideman were always keyboard related because nobody needs a guitar player. <laughs> But everybody could use a, a Hammond organist or an accordion, and that's been fun. I love contributing to other people's albums. I love to write parts and arrangements for for keyboard parts. And over the years, I've gone into the studio to work with the artist and the engineer in person. But now, of course, with Pro Tools and stuff, I'm getting more things where somebody in a different state will just email me and say, hey, can I Dropbox you the scratch vocals and the rhythm track and and then i'll just import that at home and play the keyboards and consolidate the wave file and dropbox it back to them that's cool and that's been really fun do you meet these people uh like when you're out on tour or how do you well mostly they're musicians who i've known for years like acquaintances of mine from other 
just who I've played with on and off, or who I've maybe I hired them to play on my album oh, as yeah. uh, some instrument, and then they hire me to do theirs. Or it's a like when I lived in Chicago, there were certain producers who were working at different studios who found out that I was an accordion player. So I had like these three producers who I was their go-to accordion guy. And so they were, they were, they were artists who I'd never met, who I'd never heard of. Yeah. And they'd just say, come in and do this session. We need an accordion. And I'd show up and I'd meet the artist and I'd hear the song and I'd put, put down an accordion track. But like my, for your listeners who are instrumentalists, maybe if one thing to take away from this conversation is my experience is the weirder the instrument that you play the more opportunities you'll have with it, mm-hmm. you know? So if you're an electric guitar player, like my experience is like the chances of you getting called to play on something are pretty slim because everybody plays electric guitar. Yeah. yeah. But boy, the fact that I have an accordion and I like to play and the word is out that I do, that's what I, that's what I primarily get called for. And then sometimes Hammond, sometimes work. And because I have a real Wurlitzer from 1968, it's not oh. like a, Nord or something, even though those sound great. But the fact that I've got the real instrument, people know that about me. And so I get calls. Can you put down a your Wurlitzer on this track? Cool. So my advice would be to buy some unusual instruments and specialize in them. And then people will call you for those. Hmm. And I think it's true, too, if you're a fiddler. Oh, my gosh. If you're a good fiddler, get the word out because everybody needs a fiddler. Yeah. People love that. And yeah. the people I know who are fiddlers, they work a lot huh. because, or cello too. Yeah. That's like, if you play the cello, you're, you're doing great. <laughs> and, you know, I suppose depending on genre, other like horns would probably like that, you know, for certain kinds of genres. Mm-hmm. So when you're contributing a line to someone else's song, mm-hmm. what have you learned in doing that? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, well, yeah, doing keyboard sessions... I think um, if you're playing keyboards that make long notes, like accordions and Hammond organ, it's so easy to do those sessions because anything you play sounds awesome. <laughs> like you could hold down like single note on a Hammond for like for four for a whole note or a series of whole notes, and it just sounds beautiful because the Hammond is a beautiful instrument. And like, if you're doing pop music or rock music, just to have this kind of grinding underneath everything just sounds great. So I found like it hasn't been, you don't, it's not rocket science. Like you don't have to be tearing it up on some sort of complex solo. And like, in I guess in the genres that I'm working in is it's, it's Americana, it's singer songwriter stuff. It's rock and roll. It's not jazz or yeah. prog or anything like super demanding. So I can play just kind of, it's more about atmosphere. It's drones, it's and I always find like my rule for keyboards is like never play the third. Like oh. I, I I I all you know the third is like your enemy. Huh. I always feel like the soloist's job is to play the third. The vocalist's job is to sing the third. But when I'm playing accordion and Hammond, it's just one five one five all day long. Hmm. You know, and then I can on little fills. I play little riffs and turnarounds and stuff that have the third in it. But primarily, I'm just it's just uh, one five all day long. Oh, but it sounds so cool. awesome. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, th- I was thinking about this the other day when I wrote a, well, actually a jingle for one of my podcast uh, supporters, mm-hmm. and I realized that I didn't really have a pad instrument in the song. Oh, yeah. And I think that's what was missing. Sure. Listening back, yeah. it was like, there's nothing constant, no drone or anything, but... Yeah. And it's interesting, because like in a, 
singer-songwriter acoustic stuff, you don't have instruments that create that pad real easily aside from like what you're saying. I think that's why people ask me to play accordion because it's a lot of the people I work with are acoustic players Mm -hmm. and you know, pianos don't have that kind of sustain that can last four measures in a row and they don't have a synthesizer dude with a huge rack of keyboards. You know what I mean? But, but that's, that's my role as the accordion player is I provide long, beautiful, supportive, atmospheric, open chords, drones, and I think, too, that's like that's such a key element of Nordic folk music, which I played for three years, is there's always a, well, not always, but very often a drone. It's either on a, a fiddle or even sometimes an open-tuned fiddle, or it's on the harmonium, or it's even on the upright bass, where you've got this lower note that's the root, or, or, the, or it's the five, and it's grinding away underneath this super-fast rocking melody, hmm. or this... Uh, jig or this you know shoddish or whatever the dance move is and i think it's true in celtic music too where and that's why like in scotland they've got bagpipes Hmm. and you know because there's that it's providing the drone or even in like indian music where you're they've got the little uh, shruti box or the harmonium and they're just droning the low and then they're chanting over the top of it and or it's in gregorian music and church music is the same oh yeah the drone is like that's the magic ingredient and I love it. I love how it sounds. It's it's effortless to play. It's just like put your finger on the thing and let it go, you know? <laughs> and it just resonates for me as a, it's my aesthetic. I just, I like that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm quite happy to provide that in a band setting. That's cool. Yeah. The, drones are cool because it's like you, you would think it would make the song more boring. Yeah. Um, but it's more, you can get away with some really cool stuff like, the relationship between the notes absolutely not the drone totally no and it's so cool too to experiment like where do you put it if you put it underneath i think isn't that called the pedal tone yeah so if it's a lower drone it's a pedal tone and that does a wonderful thing in its own right but then you can reverse it and put a single note way up high above all the chaos and have this non-changing and sometimes like i'll put a two up above instead of a one oh. or i'll put a or i'll put a five up there instead of a one and just and not have it be loud but have it be super subtle just like whistling or uh whispering over the song oh, cool. and i think that's really beautiful and really interesting and then i love too when the other chords are moving around it like so i love to play a five drone and then hear the band changing one and four Oh. Over the top, and that's like a that's a thing we huh. did a lot playing the Nordic folk music, where the I'm, I'd play the harmonium, where I'd play the five, and then the band would be doing their one four minor two or whatever they're doing. And then at the exact moment, then I resolve to the one, and then the roof blows off. Because your ear is like hearing, you're, you're hanging in suspended animation. Yeah. And you're hearing that delicious five underneath it all. But then when the five resolves, it's like the sun comes up. It's just like, every, yeah. it's like you take a breath together. Like, oh, it feels so good to resolve. Because then when you go back to one, it's like, man, you're like going a million miles an hour. At that yeah. Point. It's just this. So it's almost like the psychology of, of resonance where you can, you can take the audience you can mess with their psyche almost because everybody 
is inclined to resolve, even though they don't even know it. It's, it's because of math and physics or whatever. We want those sound waves to be divided in half and divided in quarters. We want it all to be mathematical because it's, it's mm-hmm. how our eardrums and our brains divide up the waves. And so when you deliberately don't let those listeners resolve until you decide when, you're taking the whole room on a journey together of resolution and tension and release. And it's just like so much fun. Yeah. And that's the joy of being an accompanist. And I think that's really what I'm not a, I'm not a lead player. I'm not a soloist. I'm not a virtuoso. My job, I really think I'm a jack of all trades. I'm an auxiliary. What do people say? Sports people always call me the utility infielder. I don't know what that means, but that's what they always call me. <laughs> it sounds it's appropriate. <laughs> but I, I'll adopt that identity, right? And so I want to be able to play lots of different instruments. I want to be able to play them all pretty well, like well enough that I can get on stage and play. Nobody's blown away by my virtuosity, but I'm the accompanist and I can make those decisions about resolution. I can make those decisions about getting in and out at the magic moment. Mm. I can mm-hmm. make those decisions about... Uh, how how can I allow the singer or the soloist or the melody person, how can I give them a foundation where they can slam dunk it, like set them up to succeed? And then how can I give the audience surprises and ins and outs and turn, turnarounds that they didn't see coming that feel so good when they happen? You know, that's, yeah. that's really fun. And really as a solo performer, like a song, singer-songwriter guy, I'm my own accompanist. So I can still make those same decisions to serve myself when I'm out there alone as a, you know, in my songwriter job. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say is like your favorite composition wise on the, the new album? Like, oh, on Look like Up. Like maybe your favorite chord progressions you've done oh, or something great. like that. Yes. Excellent. These are, these are such fun questions. Okay. I got a couple here. I have to look at my own album to remember what songs are on there. Um, well, you know, the last song I wrote for the album came in just under the wire, where the whole record, we had done the pre-production, we had made scratch tracks, we had talked about, so I had like nine songs, and I wanted another one, so I wrote this song called Prioritize Us, which just barely made it onto the record, because it was written so late, but because it was so fresh at the time, I had just written it, and and I had written it on the keyboard because I was in this such this keyboard mindset. I wrote it on a Casio SK-1. You know mm. what those are? Uh, they're, they're, really, really? they're really tiny. They have small keys. And they, have, they were built in like 1987. And they, it was one of the first uh, Shopco or Target style samplers oh, where they have a yeah. little microphone in the corner so you could sample your voice. Oh, And cool. do like cheesy <laughs> 80s rock tricks on it. So I had this tiny little Casio SK-1 with, with a cheesy, like, brass sound. And so I wrote the tune with, like, a, my old 80s rolling drum machine. I programmed a beat. And then I just started playing these two two-finger riffs on the SK-1. It just felt like, wow, I would have never written this kind of song 10 years ago. It ended up having all sorts of chord changes that I would have never, hmm. I would have never written them on a guitar. 
Like never, ever. Yeah. And I would have never written them. It, it's a lot of uh, flatted sevens, like, or it's, it's almost modal. It's, I don't know. I always forget yeah. if it's Phrygian <clears throat> or Mixolydian, but it's, it's whatever that mode is where if you're on the white keys, you get a B flat. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? It's Mixolydian. It's Mixolydian. Think, yeah. yeah. So it's got the drop seven, which is kind of a rock and roll thing, but then it's living a lot in the, with minor chords with, uh, with a seven on the top. So it's like, I'm, if I'm playing like an E in the bass with a G chord on the top. So it's sort of behaving like mm. it's behaving like an E minor, but there's a D in it. And then in the same song, I'm playing a, a B in the bass with a D chord on the top. So it's behaving like a B minor, but there's an A in it. And then we, we recorded it on the same cheesy keyboard. So you hear this super hi-fi, gigantic rock band, but the foundational thing is this 1987 mini-key, tiny little keyboard. I feel like when I've done that technique you're talking about, like, only using a few notes at once Absolutely. on the keyboard. Yeah, three fingers at a time. Yeah. yeah. It's like you kind of get out of your mode of just playing chords, chunk chords. Exactly. Yeah, and I think if, you, um, if you're going to sit down at your piano, your big key instrument, you got room for your fingers on there. So you're going to use more fingers. But because I was playing a tiny keyboard with super little tiny baby keys, you don't have room for your fingers. <laughs> all, all you got room for is two or three at a time. Yeah. And... Those kind of limitations are so helpful for composing yeah. because it gets, like you say, it gets you out of your mode and forces you to think about uh, changes and things in a different way. Yeah. How about lyrics wise? What are you most happy with on the record? Oh yeah. Well, I think my lyrics are changing a, a lot too. I've been talking about this with other interviews regarding the record, but when I started out as a songwriter, my lyrics were very, very journalistic and observational. And I was almost deliberately trying to not make them personal or emotional. Like I was really interested. I wanted it to be cold and calculating kind of observational. I almost felt like I was a reporter. Like hey, now I'm going to describe the world I'm in. Or now I'm going to describe this situation uh, from looking at it from the outside and be real clinical. I think that's what they were. They were clinical kind of lyrics. And they were that way for quite a while. And I think, you know, I developed sort of a fan base of some people that sort of liked those kind of lyrics. But it was unable to cross over to a more mainstream audience just because I, I guess what I didn't realize at the time was that normal people want heart <laughs> you know and but i'm i'm not so concerned with heart because i'm sort of a nerd and i don't i don't miss it myself just speaking as a listener mm -hmm. i'm drawn to kind of nerd pop music you know <laughs> yeah. i don't need a lot of confessional heartfelt emotional junk um but most people do <laughs> and i think what happened to me was uh, 10 years ago i became a father i had children and then i started approaching 40 and I sort of had some midlife crisis events in my life. And I, I had some times where I was really struggling emotionally 
and it busted me open in a way that I had never felt before. And then I had this opportunity to play Nordic folk music, which is, you know, it's traditional music. Some of the tunes are hundreds of years old. They're exceedingly beautiful tunes. And that's my family story. You know, my ancestors came from Finland. So all of a sudden here I was this 40-year-old guy, kind of in a midlife crisis moment with children, playing ancient music that my ancestors would have heard 300 years ago. And instrumental music with no lyrics, just this penetrative, deeply felt, incredibly beautiful traditional music. And I think it totally like rewrote my brain. And I came out of that experience like almost like a very fragile and very emotionally exposed for the first time in my life. After that experience, that oh my gosh, I can make a pop album again. I can I can be Jonathan Runman, the, the the rock singer again, even though I hadn't done that for many years. And I got really passionate and really excited, and I wrote all this new music. And it's it's totally the lyrics are so personal and so emotional, and I I feel them so deeply in my body and in my soul, like that I never had these feelings before. And so this album, Look Up, feels like. In a way, it's almost like a rebirth of a, a different kind of Jonathan Runman. You know, it's like uh, I'm writing about topics and I'm using language that I would have never used before. And also because I did like half the record was co-written with other writers. And I think uh, writers who I really respect, who I really trust, and I really like their ideas. I was excited to be working with them. And I think th- they allowed me to, like I could tap into where they were at emotionally. And we could... Uh, kind of open up to one another as collaborators, composers. So yeah, the yeah. it's a real it was a real game changer. This this particular album. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Because I f- I feel like I go in waves too, where it's like I'm I write analytical songs maybe, and then yeah. But sometimes it's just like sit down at the piano, and then just like the super emotional song comes out. Oh, yeah, but. I don't know. But you've allowed yeah. yourself to live in both worlds for most for a longer time. You didn't have Maybe. as radical of a, of a turn not. as I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. But I, I do relate to you, though, in that I can make my brain, I can flip the switch and go to sort of journalistic mode. Uh, it, it would be easy for me to go back to that, to, to, to writing observationally and to write journalistically sure. and to get, get more uh, clinical. Because that's my, I think that's my natural inclination, and I still, as a listener, as a fan of music, I, I love that kind of music. Yeah, you know. So but, how do you switch? How do you switch? Flip the switch and write more personal songs? Do you think? Well, the question is: is can I, in the future now, what am I? My question is: what am I? What am I going to do next? 
Yeah. Because I've been in this deeply personal phase for a few years where I've felt so emotional about the work. And I'm at an interesting point, I guess, as a composer, because I'm sort of reaching the end of the promotion cycle of the Look Up album. It's, it came out this year. I'm going to hustle it maybe for another six months. But eventually, in the next, probably in the next 12 months, I'm going to have to decide what, what to do next. And I have no clue what I'm going to do next. And what's good about that is I could go anywhere. Like, I have total freedom. I could go any direction I want. So the question is, well, do I want to continue to tap into that emotional place? Or do I want to take another left turn and do something totally... And a part of me thinks, well, maybe I should do a concept album. Yeah. So that I can focus on a pre-existing notion and build a whole record around that. And then, then I wouldn't have to... Uh, engage in those emotional that all that personal stuff because it would just be fun and i like concept albums anyway yeah. so like that's one option i could do that or i could stay on the same path and continue to explore this personal stuff which would be fine or i you know i just don't know i could yeah. i could go anywhere and then usually in my career like in these 20 plus years i've i've always had the next thing waiting in line Hmm. You know, like I've always known, oh, yeah, whenever I'm done with whatever I'm working on, I'm so excited to get to the next thing because I know exactly what I'm going to do. But this is maybe the first time in my life where I have no idea. I just don't have any clue. And I'm actually less motivated right now to do the next thing than I've ever been before. And I think it's because of the changes in the music business and the changes in technology because it's I'm, I get this feeling like uh, my my entire career has been driven by making records and making a physical record like a CD that I would record and release and support. That's been my cycle for 20 plus years. But now I'm really aware that that those recorded documents don't matter anymore because of Spotify, Apple Music, streaming audio, MP3s, the devaluation of the recorded work of art itself. Hmm. And I realize that's reality and I'm, I'm just choosing to accept it as the new normal. But it's, there's a part of me that's grieving the loss of the album and grieving the loss of how concrete it is to set out to make an album and have a vision for an album that you make and manufacture and sell on the road. Because that's how I've lived my life, you know. So because I know that especially the longer I go, the less it's going to matter if I make a new record. And especially the less it's going to matter that I make a physical CD, I'm yeah. I'm I feel less motivated to do it. Yeah, you know, because I think why bother if why bother making a record if if I can't sell it, you know? Yeah, I'd be it's doing tough. it for myself, but I'm not like uh, desperate to express myself with new material. I feel so deeply committed to the records I've made already. And to especially this new album that I'm currently supporting, I'm not in any hurry to move on to something else. Like, I, I really want people in the world to have my records in their life. You know, I want to be the soundtrack of your life. And I've got albums that I'm super proud of that I've poured my heart and soul and time and money into. I want to hustle those records. Mm -hmm. I want to play those songs for new people. And, and I'm, I'm independent. Like, there's zillions of people who've never heard of me before. I want to get in front of them and play my songs for them and give them a chance to bring those records home with them. So, you know, I'm not very motivated, actually, to mm -hmm. do something else. 
And that feels yeah. good. That feels just fine with me, you know? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I feel like I'm almost at that state right now, too. With, mm-hmm. like, uh, I'm actually starting to get more interested in game design than I am, like, <laughs> doing a new composition. Yeah. But. And game design has a musical element in it, for sure. It does. And it's it's a creative outlet. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a hierarchy of uh, of creative mediums that are better or worse than one. Yeah. You know, just I, whatever one you're most excited about. Absolutely. At the time. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's yeah, whatever is makes you excited to make stuff, be creative. Like I could care less about the medium. Yeah. You know, I just want to I just want to keep being creative in my own yeah. in my own life. You know, so I'm not I'm not a music loyalist or a or a rock and roll songwriter loyalist. I'll do anything, you know, yeah. whatever whatever floats my boat. I'm gonna yeah. follow that. I'm gonna chase that dragon, you know. Yeah. So speaking of creativity and uh, everything, maybe we could talk a little bit about your podcast with your oh, wife, yeah. Don. Sure. So, so she's a psychologist. And, yeah. And. Uh, you guys, what what was your inspiration to start your podcast on creativity? Well, we we both really like showbiz, and we both really like media, and we both really like the internet, and we both get excited by hanging out with art with artists, and we have a lot of friends who are creative people, and and like in addition to being a psychologist, my wife also is the editor at a publishing company. So part of her, her daily work is working with writers, graphic designers, cartoonists, illustrators. They make animated videos. So she's doing voiceover and animation. And so she's constantly surrounded by creative people and just loves that vibe. And me too. You know, I'm always surrounded by instrumentalists and engineers and producers and, you know, writers. And it's so that's our world and we love it. And oftentimes when we're just sitting at home together, that's what we talk about. We talk about the people who are inspiring us, and we talk about our own new projects. But just because of the nature of our jobs, we never get to work together. Uh, Dawn's got her daily job, and I'm on the road or whatever. So we thought, boy, wouldn't it be fun if we could have a project, a creative project that we would both do together that would involve all the things we like about art and media and technology and showbiz. And I had just been... When we got the idea to do the podcast, I had been into podcasts for about a year. I started listening to podcasts in the summer of 2013, and it didn't take me long to really get addicted to a few of them and get really into it. And mm-hmm. I just love it. Yeah. Now, and now it's actually been, it's podcasts have become my driving in the car background. Oh, yeah. I don't listen to CDs and music as much because podcasts I find are I don't know, they're just more fulfilling to listen to when I'm driving around or yeah. on the airplane or whatever. So anyway, I, I was a real fan of podcasting. And as I talked with Dawn, I kind of brought up the idea and she was really into it. And I really did my homework because I, I thought if we're going to do one, it's got to be the real thing right away. And so I read a ton of stuff on like how to do it and where to put the audio. And then I wanted to be sure we came out of the gate looking like the real thing. So I designed the the cover and I made sure it was to the specs for the iTunes store. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, well, if we're having a real podcast, it has to have a theme song. So then I wrote the theme song and recorded the theme song and I took it to a real studio and had it produced out. Creativity, 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 cre
it's been eight months and we set a goal of uh, we want to do 20 episodes before the end of the calendar year. Oh. And we're on, we just posted episode 18. Yeah. So we're on the way. You know, we got two more to do before the new year. So yeah. we'll do it. Would you say it's influenced your your own music making and like talking to all these people and I mean obviously it's not all musicians but yeah well it's definitely I think it's been really inspiring I haven't been writing a lot of new songs in the last months because I've been putting all my musical energy into booking and performing but I'm I'm sure I'm internalizing the wisdom from our guests and I was just talking to Don about this actually there's been recurring themes in our show that are coming from all different artists from all different mediums. And some of those recurring themes are collaboration, vulnerability, and persistence. And like I find like these are some of the things that people say over and over again. And so I think, you know, and that's also resonating with what I've learned about my own musical career. Hmm. Vulnerability. Yeah. And collaboration. That's been my own experience. So it's just so cool to hear those. Uh, it's, we're resonating with our own guests, really, is yeah. what, what's happening. Well, I, I'm kind of curious, like, how it works for you when you you go out on tour, mm-hmm. um, but you're family man, too. Yeah. Yeah, how does that work uh, for you? Yeah, people ask me about that. And I think for Don and myself, it's not so complex because we don't know anything different. Like, we got married really young, but I was already touring. So we've never known life where I'm just home all the time. I'm always out for a week or out for a weekend, home for two weeks, gone for three days. It's it's always been this random thing of me getting in and out. So that's just how we've always operated. And uh, and Dawn is very independent. And we are sort of romantic relationship is really chill. Like we're we're not super needy. Both of us are very uh, low maintenance, let's say mm. that. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I was just thinking how funny it is. I'm so used to being on tour that when I go on tour, Don and I never talk on the phone. So we only communicate by text. Mm. And it's totally fine with both of us. So yeah. there's no like insecurity or bad okay. feelings. It's just like, oh, yeah. It's... And I think it's because like we have such an understanding of like my vocation. Like, this is just my, it's yeah. just what I do. It's not like, oh, I'm upsetting the apple cart by going on tour. It's just like going on tour, that's that's what I do. Yeah. And so I've been on tour with other artists who like call their sweetie like every night and have like this kind of mournful heart to heart on the phone, like, oh, you know, and then they feel yeah. bad and they're guilty, like, oh, I forgot to call. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know, I just don't call. <laughs> I just, <laughs> we just text each other, you know? It's like that's, not a big deal. Yeah. And so uh, the the tricky thing though, it has been having the children. That's been the trick. But also, like I have my parenting philosophy has is always like no drama. No drama is my parenting mantra. And so our deal is, yeah, dad goes on tour. That's that's he's a musician. He goes. That's how he helps our family survive. That's how we buy food and pay for stuff is because he's he's a touring musician. So there's just no drama about it. There's mm. no heartfelt like tear filled goodbyes and hugs. It's just like, okay, guys, we'll see you later. Yeah. You know, and I'm out the door. Mm. And they're really cool. And I like I remember once I was on tour with a guy who would get to the hotel room and he had a he had a framed photograph of his children in the suitcase. And he'd put the framed photograph on the nightstand in the hotel 
So he'd like look at his kids and then he'd have to like Skype in hmm. to talk to the kids face to face on Skype every single night. Like oh. even with time changes and time zones and the, huh. the show and it's, and, and he felt horrible. Like if he couldn't do it and then they would be so ticked at him if he didn't. Huh. And I just thought, I, I can't live like that. You can't set that precedent. Nope, I'm not going to, no precedent, no drama. That's yeah. my thing. And so we try to just told the kids like, my job is, Hey, I'm a songwriter. I'm on the road. It's not like I'm not coming back. I'm coming yeah. back in a few days. Yeah. You're not going to die. I'm not going to die. No <laughs> one's going to die. Yeah. It's just how we do it, you know? And I think about like all the people who have serious jobs. Like what if you're in the military? You get called to Afghanistan for two years and you might write a letter once in a while. I mean, yeah. those guys, if that's a real job and you leave, yeah. your, you leave your spouse and your kids at home, I don't have anything to whine about. Yeah. I'm just out for three days or I'm out for five days. Big deal. Yeah. You know? So no drama. That's my oh, mantra. That's good. And the kids are cool. My and Dawn's very cool. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I, I uh, my girlfriend and I, I think, are in the same boat, kind of, because she actually just moved to St. Cloud an hour. Oh yeah, away. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a teacher mm-hmm. and just got a full time music education job, which oh, is great. Yeah. Um, but she's she busy too. It. She's busy. Yeah, yeah, she's really busy. I, so. I mean, we see each other on the weekends now, and that's it's kind of tough, but it's also kind of how it's been actually for yeah. a while, yeah, actually since we started dating pretty much, yeah, so well, it's good that you have an understanding and you you can communicate about that and be cool about it, you know, mm-hmm. and of course, every couple's different, so I'm not bossing people around and saying you have to do it my way, but yeah. I'm saying like what i it's just the kind of person I am and the kind of person Don is, and it works for us and yeah. And uh, we're just deliberate about it, that no drama. You know? Yeah. So uh, I have to ask about your, uh, I saw that one of your songs was on the Ellen show. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the biggest kind of big time break or whatever that any of my music has ever had. But, you know, and it wasn't a life changer or anything because it was only in there for a few seconds oh <laughs> you know how they it's not like they featured the song oh, like for the entire tune hmm. but they used it in a uh, comedy sketch that had soundtrack elements okay so i got an email directly from her music producer on the show hmm. and they said we found this tune i think they found it on itunes just searching for that that topic uh, well in the i should tell you the topic the song is called the glasses song and it was a song about what it's like to have to wear a eyeglasses because i have bad vision and so I, I always have to have contacts or eyeglasses or i can't function so i have this song about how desperately i need to wear my glasses and the the, the sketch they were doing was it was called ellen goes to lens crafters and the joke is that she went to the mall to the lens crafters as ellen degeneres famous talk show host and sits behind the counter to like do the eye exam and then the the patient comes in and they're like holy cow it's ellen doing my eye exam and then she jokes around with and it's super funny actually you can i think you can search it out on youtube and so what they used my song and the chorus of my song is the bumper music at the top of the sketch oh nice where they show her like walking into lens crafters and my little song's kind of going in the background ended up uh getting this really great it was sort of sort of mechanical license check oh for nice. it 
And then I got, after the fact, the royalties from ASCAP because Ellen, at the time, Ellen's show was second only to Oprah oh, in wow. the daytime ratings. So it was just massively huge. Oh, cool. And then they kept rerunning it as a rerun. That particular episode would get replayed. Huh. And then they relicensed it for Canada and Europe. So every time they relicensed the show, I got another got big it. check. Oh, that's awesome. So that was that was really really cool and there's there's been two times where um national tv has dropped one of my songs into the soundtrack mm. and both times it was because the song was super specific about a specific thing the other time it happened was on the cbs morning news okay and I, they didn't even ask my permission for that one that was just weird i just went to i noticed on my ascap statements that i had a huge spike and i was like mm. what the heck is all this income and so I went digging around, and it was like credited to CBS this morning. I was like, what in the world? No one even asked me. Huh. And I had a song about sleep deprivation, because mm. I had struggled with insomnia after I had uh, children. And it was really awful, so I wrote this song about sleep deprivation. I would never be here if it was up to me, dear. I don't need to see the morning break. I'm alive. And the CBS This Morning News was doing a story on people with sleep problems and sleep therapy and hmm. stuff. And so they, they must have went to iTunes and they found the song and they dropped it in as a soundtrack for huh. for this news story. <laughs> Doesn't seem uh, quite legit that they just did it without asking. But, but I, uh, I think it's legal. I mean, you know, they can do it as long as they pay the royalty. Hmm. So. That was, but anyway, I was quite oh. happy. You know, I was anytime yeah. anybody uses it. But I, I learned a good lesson from both of those experiences, and that is, those were two of the most narrowly focused, specific topics you could ever write about, and those were two of the ones that got picked. And that taught me that music supervisors for film and TV and industrial films or whatever are out there looking for songs to fit a specific event topic. And they're going to start by looking narrow before they widen their search. Hmm. And if they find something that's perfect, they'll use it. Yeah. And the other the other song that's probably the biggest hit that I've ever had, not like a chart hit, but as far as traction, has been this song called Librarian that I wrote in 2004 from my public library album. So it's a song literally about a librarian, and it goes into very specific detail about who a librarian is and what they do. Hmm. And that song, far and away, has been the most played the most well-known uh it's been used on national public radio mm-hmm. it's been quoted and dropped into presentations and powerpoint and licensed for little things here and there and mm. and it's only because it's about something very narrow that's searchable it's in the song title and there's not a lot of songs about that mm. and so whenever someone wants to you know, have a piece or a story or whatever about a librarian, they're going to find that song on iTunes and, they're, and they use it. I'm a librarian, I'm a librarian, and I like it quiet so the pages can be burned. So that's from your journalistic area. That, that's right. Song writing, exactly. Huh? Yep. Though, And all those songs were written during my writing journalistically about mm. minutiae like yeah. that that was my motivation is to write about minutiae like take something in normal everyday life that's very very specific and then write a yeah. pop song about it 
One song from, I think it's from that album too, is uh, Second Language. Oh, that, yeah. That, Sec- Second I really like that one. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was a one, too, that people, that listeners really responded to. That was on the Public Library album as well. Yep. And that was inspired by, um, I was watching a documentary on PBS, and it was about uh, immigrants from Laos, you know, hmm. the Hmong community. Yeah. And they were focusing on a teenage girl who was growing up sort of an American teenager in high school. But she had these parents from Laos who couldn't speak English and who were kind of living in the traditional way. And the conflict between how does this girl grow up being from this very, very different culture and now living as an American. And so that was a song that's very unusual in my catalog because it's a song about a character. And like my songs almost never are about characters. They're Hmm. almost always observational or journalistic so the fact that I would take on a character is really weird. And the fact that I was singing as a 15-year-old girl from Laos, which is hmm. the, about as different a person as the real me as you could possibly be. Gotta get my license, learn my lessons, learn when Texas became a state. And I wish I never... This baby, I cannot study or sleep in late. When I wake up, I speak my second language. I speak my second language when I catch my train. I work all day. I speak my second language. I speak my second language. In the movie I saw, she was having all sorts of romantic problems with her boyfriend, and she had a baby in high school, and then she had to figure out, like, how do you raise the kid? And and so I'm singing about, like, having my baby and you know, all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I think when people heard that song, it's real different than the rest of the tunes on that album. And and then, of course, the that was one where my producer, Walter, was able to do stuff that I could have never done without him, where... Um, he encouraged me to just like, no, play it on the Wurlitzer. Like, don't play guitar on it. Just like play it on the keyboard, sing it really quietly. And then his his band, the Silos, his band were the backup band. And they were just exquisite. And then Walter was like, how about we do a string section? And uh, so we went to New York City where Walter lives. And he brought in this string quartet called Ethel, who you may have heard of. They play hmm. here sometimes at McAllister College. But they're like kind of a, one of the busiest kind of progressive new music string quartets out of New York. Hmm. So it's the only time in my recording career that I had a song with a string quartet. Another song I wanted to ask you about is... The Science of Rockets. Oh, yeah. Uh, from your new one. Yeah. Um, that's a cool song. And I, I thought it was cool that you had Daniel Levitin oh, yeah. sing uh, harmony vocals in there. Yeah. The, the, Do you know about Dan? Um, yeah. Just from This Is Your Brain on Music. Yeah. Well, you know what I should book. do is I should give you Dan's email because he would, he would be a great guest because oh, he's a composer. Yeah. 
as well as being a neuroscientist. Oh, I didn't realize that. But Dan That's... Levitin is a big, he's a major influence on my life because when my wife and I got married, I was 21 years old and we moved to the West Coast so my wife could go to graduate school to get her PhD. And one of her classmates was Daniel Levitin. Oh, cool. And they were both doing brain science stuff at the University of Oregon. So they were both in grad school together. And Dan had just quit his job working for like Reprise Records or something. He'd had a whole career before in working for record labels and producing. He produced the Blue Oyster Cult album and <laughs> worked with Chris Isaac and you know, done a ton of like big rock star things in the studio. And so he was getting starting this whole new career as a scientist. And every week, Dan Levitin would have a listening party at his house. And he had, a, he had an audiophile stereo system, just like pristine speakers. And so he invited over Don and myself and some other professors from the U and some other musicians. And every Thursday, we would sit down and listen to new albums. And Dan was on the mailing list for all the labels. So, you know, Warner Brothers. And you know, he would just get like, he would get 30 puffy envelopes with new albums in it from the record labels every week. Huh. And so he just, like on Thursdays, he'd look through the puffy envelopes. Well, what should we listen to? And so we listened to like Nirvana in Utero when it was new. Oh, And we cool. listened to Tom Petty Wildflowers. And we'd listen to the remixed and remastered version of the Carpenters' uh, greatest hits. Or, and then we'd listen to symphonies on his audiophile system. And hmm. uh, so it was super interesting because I had never met a real showbiz authority before. And Dan's a wonderful guy, super open and really fun. And and then he's also a songwriter. He plays tons of different instruments and all that sort of thing. So we had a great time hanging out with him. And so then when he went on to become super famous author and scientist, uh, we've always been in touch and try to have dinner whenever we're getting together and stuff hmm. like that. So he's a really fun guy to know. So uh, it was like a year and a half ago or so, he was at the University of Minnesota doing a lecture on his brain music i went to that actually oh, you did. <laughs> yeah oh I, yeah so you you saw him speak at the year. yeah that was really cool well that trip when he was here i was beginning the early stages of the look up album oh. and dan was going to have dinner with don, with don and me and i said hey would you come and sing harmony on this song i have about science because like he's mr science and so he's like yeah let's do it so he came down to my basement and we set up the m box and then he did like multiple passes of harmony vocals on that song and i thought it was perfect seeing as he's uh mr science that he gets to sing on the science of rockets it's not so terribly complicated this ain't the science of rockets so come down to the the science of rockets I still want you around You overthink these is hard This ain't the science of rockets It's just the way to my heart I did want to ask you about the Finnish folk music. Yeah. Because I, I don't really know anything about Finnish folk music. Um, but were you guys doing traditional songs with the new kind of arrangements? Yeah. Yeah, that it? was kind of the shtick was that we were taking traditional tunes. Some of them were 
hundreds of years old, and some of them maybe from the 40s or 50s, fiddle tunes, you know, that have kind of existed in the Finnish culture. And then we would take them and then put our kind of American contemporary progressive spin on them. And that wasn't uh, hard to do because I was a rock musician playing guitar, and there's usually not a guitarist in Finnish folk music. And and I, because uh, Sarah the Fiddler know, knew all about the dances, like how to do a polka or a waltz or a shottish or whatever, because that's what the, the tradition is a dance tradition. These are mm. tunes played for dancers to dance to. But I didn't know anything about any of those dances, and I don't know how to do the steps and I'm not familiar with any of that stuff. I'm just a rock musician. So just having me in the band made everything be a little bit uh, unusual. Hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm the- playing polkas like a rock band, you know, and that sort of huh. thing. Or playing uh, playing waltzes like, a, like an American rock musician would play them. music is interesting because you know i got i had a chance to learn about like swedish music and norwegian music and danish music and and then of course lots of americans like celtic music which is really popular mm-hmm. irish music and that sort of thing but finnish music has its own personality within those kind of northern european traditions mm-hmm. and to me to my ears it's more aggressive it's got a little bit more attitude it's a little sneakier like it, it has weirder changes huh. more unpredictable turnarounds and uh it's a little bit crooked <laughs> you know, whereas I guess most people's touchstone is kind of like Celtic music, you know, like Star the County Down or, mm-hmm. you know, some of those kind of familiar fiddle tunes. Mm-hmm. And this this is definitely, you can tell it's genetically related back to the Vikings from a thousand years ago or something, but it def, it has its own thing. Huh. And I felt like as a rock musician, it really lended itself to rock music because it had this kind of darkness hmm. and this kind of melancholy and this kind of like bad guy kind of, I don't cool. know, it just had this sort of nasty quality to it in the aggressive tunes that I really appealed to me. And then the beautiful tunes, the slow tunes were absolutely like mind-blowingly beautiful. And so to, to be, and of course, Sarah was an amazing violinist, so I got to accompany this incredibly beautiful melodic lines by playing the piano and harmonium. Huh. So yeah, it was it was an incredible experience and of course my both sides of my family my mom and dad's sides are finnish and i grew up in a finnish community surrounded Mm. by finnish people and upper michigan in upper michigan yep and i've been to finland numerous times on tour as a solo artist and i'm in touch with my cousins in helsinki so i visit them when i go there Mm. but uh, but i didn't know about the fiddle tradition Mm. and so it was so much fun to get into that and incredibly emotionally powerful to get to do that yeah okay i could just feel it in my marrow you know yeah like it was just baked into my genetics <laughs> so it was really that was an amazing experience then of course we got to collaborate with some of the best musicians from the nordic countries and we got to make an album with arto Jarvala, who's one of finland's greatest folk musicians he's sort of like the eric clapton of finnish fiddling
that like when you're describing it as this ancient music, it's like, wow, that's these melodies have been around that long. Yeah. So there's something really good about them. Yeah, they wouldn't have survived since 1750 or whatever if they weren't, uh, if there wasn't something about them that was really powerful and great. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that being in that Finnish band influenced your pop album? Definitely. I mean, stuff? I think the Look Up album is is really an outgrowth of those years playing Finnish music. In fact, three of the tunes on Look Up I wrote for the Finnish band to play. Oh. And we actually got around to playing one of them, although we never recorded, but Home Unknown, which is a tune on the Look Up album Kaibama played on our the last year that we were on the road. And in fact, when the time came to make the Look Up album, I wanted to do that one as close to... Um, you know, to sort of pay homage to that Finnish music. And so that's on that album, it's all acoustic. There's no electric instruments. And I play all the instruments on that. So I'm playing guitar and banjo and mandola and harmonium. ask you a question from my previous guests. Oh, uh, is that how you do the it? The question chain, yep. Oh, the question so chain. So my last guest Fantastic. was an EDM producer yeah. um, in New Zealand, Sam Matla, and he was wondering, what's one composition or songwriting trick that you discovered by yourself, not from any book or article or video? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what's something you'd you could share, I guess. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a great question. I think uh, an epiphany that I've had in the last half of my career and, you know, in my adult life, and I'm more aware of it now than ever, is the importance of, of subdivision within a song, a groove, a pattern, a beat, a chord, and as I age and, you know, evolve as a composer, my instinct now is to have less subdivision. Hmm. So if we're talking, let's, t- let's talk rhythm for a second. So rather than subdividing the guitar part or the hi-hat part or the bass part into 16th notes, I would choose to play quarters or eighths instead. Hmm. So less subdivision in the rhythm. Hmm. And the same thing within chords, like, so instead of playing a triad, have less subdivision and play an open, a duo, whatever those called, you know, yeah. a, a two note yeah. interval. 
Yeah. Instead of a triad. And then if you are going to subdivide to try to let each person or each instrument or each sound do its own job within that. Uh, so to, to not ever have two people or two instruments or two noises playing eighth notes, hmm. but to give somebody or something the job to do the eighth notes and then let that thing only live there by itself and then give somebody else the quarter note job. Or if there's quarter notes, if you're going to give somebody else the job to play quarter notes, have them play the other one in the in the hole. Yeah, you know what I mean. So if you're gonna if you're looking down at the map of the music you're making, and you're kind of slicing it up, you know, to just kind of pull some of those slices out of there. Yeah, and free up, make more holes. And it, and it's funny because it works with groove, it works with rhythm, it works with instrumentation, it works with harmon harmonization, it works with numbers of people. I'm just all about like being being aware of how how are you subdividing? That's just a good question to ask. What are you what are you subdividing? How are you subdividing? And then maybe think about doing it less or or lifting some of those away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's been my lesson with doing orchestral stuff too. Yeah. And I know that a lot I mean the tradition is that a lot of instruments play the same stuff. Yeah. But that's just not as fun I think for me to compose and like kind of boring for people to play, I think sometimes mm -hmm. too. So, so, but it's just hard when you have like an entire orchestra worth of people. Sure. Cause then or, it gets too crazy. Or it's sometimes. hard if you've got uh, a bunch of collaborators who are awesome, like re like a really oh, great yeah. band or a studio crew who's just killer and you want to cut them loose. Yeah. <laughs> and you want to let them do as much as humanly possible because yeah. they're so great or they're so inspiring. But then the trick is like, how to give them their own little hole to live in. Yeah. You know? Oh, but here's, yeah. here's the contrast thing. Cause, cause you are saying like, of course in music, there are lots of examples where people play the same thing in unison. There's lots of, so, uh, so unison is a great thing and subdivision is a great thing when you do it deliberately. Yeah. You know? So when you isolate this one moment where everybody's going to hit the quarter notes together or everybody's going to hit the eighth notes together, or where the vocalists are going to not sing harmony, but they're all going to sing in unison for this moment or this chorus. Because then when you do it, it's like the roof blows off. Yeah. And it just feels like this huge, wonderful release, or it just feels so heavy, and you just love it because you want to like drive a thousand miles an hour on the highway because it's just killing it. Yeah. You know? So if you can fly in those subdivisions at the magic moment, then it's great. Yeah. But the trick is to save it for the magic moment instead of just always just having it groaning along underneath everything all the time mm -hmm. yeah that's a trick and here's a this is a great dan levitin quote which i think about constantly and it's one of the first things dan ever said when i was just getting to know him like way back 20 years ago i remember sitting at his house and we were listening to the beatles and i think we were listening to like beatles bootlegs this is before the internet before you could get like the unreleased versions of abbey road which of course now are on the Beatles anthology albums. You yeah. Know, but this is back then there was a secret club of traders who would mm. send uh, bootleg tapes and CDs to each other. And so Dan had these bootlegs. And I remember listening to these weird Beatles remixes or whatever. And Dan was saying, you know, what's great about Paul McCartney is he's always playing his bass up the neck and sometimes way up the neck, oh, like yeah. just way up there. And then he said, but there's the one moment where he'll play the open E or the open A 
Hmm. And it sounds like the lowest note in the world. Hmm. And I thought, that's right. That's why he's a great bass player. And that's what it is about being a great arranger. Is you can, instead of always hitting that open string just because it's there and it sounds great, you save it for the one magic moment because your ear just gets used to hearing it up the neck. And you think, oh yeah, they sound great. Everybody sounds normal. But then out of, the, out of nowhere comes the lowest note you've ever heard. And it's not. It's just an open A. But in the context, it blows your mind because you... You didn't know it was coming, and you just bliss out because, like, wow, it was perfect. Yeah. Uh, so, what's your question for my next guest? Oh, do I get to just? Um, you get to ask I whatever just, you want. Okay. Now, this is a question I do like to ask other musicians, and uh, I like to ask: Do you have a favorite key signature? And if so, why? And is it based on how it sounds actually, like the waves themselves, how they sound? Or is it about how the shapes you make with your fingers? Because like, I know like for me, it's often about the mechanics more than the sound itself. I like the key of A because of the shapes on the guitar and mm. because I can dig into that open A string and I can oh. bounce off the low E and I can riff around. It just feels so good to play an A. Huh. You know, I know like Keith Richards has so many good songs, like lots of really like hard rock songs are an A for those. It just feels so good to play those shapes. I don't care necessarily about the the sound of those waveforms that make an A chord. Yeah. But there are people who can hear the difference. This is fascinating to me that there are people that can hear the difference tonally. Like I can hear the difference in pitch between an a key of A and the key of C. I can hear the pitch, but I can't tell the tone, the color. I can't tell the color. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Some people can hear the color, and it and it's a huge deal to them, and they'll choose that based on the color of the, you know, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I actually, we, I was just kind of talking with this with uh, someone on Facebook uh-huh. on Composer Quest Facebook. Yeah, he brought up that D and A are mm-hmm. the saddest notes on the piano, <laughs> and I, I was thinking like, oh, uh-huh. I guess because we are used to hearing. A lot of songs in C. Yeah. So then when you put a D, it's always going to be oh, yeah. minor feel oh, and A too. Yeah. Maybe subconsciously. So, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And, the key, and the key of C is just our subconscious happy key, maybe. Uh, maybe, yeah. But there are things going on like on a piano because of its weird uh, resonance that, that, you know, some of those distances between half steps and whole steps are actually a little bit different. And isn't that weird? Yeah. Because piano tuners have to compensate for certain waveforms when they're tuning in a piano that's different than if you were playing a synthesizer which is just squares and mathematics the whole way yeah that's so weird that our ears are we're hearing stuff that we don't know we're hearing and that some people are tuned into the the mood of those wave shapes that but i'm just not one of those guys you know personally i don't hear it i don't think i can really either Mm -hmm. yeah not not don't have perfect pitch or anything right so and I also yeah. think it's more pe- people who are super emotionally tuned into themselves, like who are really deep feelers, I think they're more likely to be affected by the color of certain key signatures. Hmm. Whereas like I've been saying this whole time, like I'm kind of a journalist or I'm more of a clinical person. So I'm, I don't care so much about that stuff. I, d- I just can't, I can't tell. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, I also challenge people to do a little intro theme for their podcast episode. Oh, so. Okay. Um, it's always kind of fun when people who are singer songwriters can bring in a guitar and 
maybe come up with a little song on the oh, spot. Oh, you want me to do it right now? Yeah. Okay. If you, oh, yeah. I didn't. I, I guess I did hear this because I have listened to your show a couple times, but I, I never thought that I would have to do it. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's do it. Cool. You want me to just wing it? Yeah. Okay. You are listening. You are listening to composer quest. <laughs> nice. Good enough. Yeah, that was fun. That was, <laughs> All right. That was so quick. Yeah, I'll buy that. I I almost have to do no editing with this entire episode because <laughs> <laughs> normally I do, but there you go. See, I think like that, that little that little song. Yeah, I, I I'd buy that song. Like I I I, I could run with that one. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it'll turn into a real song. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be awesome. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for having me on. This has yeah. been really super fun. I can't wait to listen to it and listen to some more shows. Yeah. Definitely. And thanks for being on our show too. Oh, for sure. This is yeah. fun. This is what podcasting is all about. Yeah. So, um, I give want to give you a chance to plug your oh yeah podcasts and yes. site um, yep yeah please listen to my podcast that i do with dawn my wife it's called creativity drill you can search it out on the itunes store uh it would be great too if all of you folks would go to my website jonathanrunman.com and there uh, you can see my upcoming tour dates i don't know is this going to post in november or something yeah November. okay my kind so. of fall tour will be done by then but i've got uh, i'm going to california in january and uh, I'm going to South Dakota in February, and I'm going to uh, Virginia later in 2016, and I'll I have some other things brewing as well. So go to my website and come see me on tour. I'd love to. Also, I love doing house concerts. So if any oh, yeah. of you folks listening host those, I'd love to come and set up in your living room and play acoustic for you and your friends. So we could do that. And Please check out my music online. Uh, listen to my Look Up album, which we talked a lot about today. That's the one I'm currently supporting. I'm super excited about it. I'm really proud of it and feel very strongly about those songs. So, yeah. yeah thank you. All right. Thanks. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Jonathan Runman. You can check out his music and podcast Creativity Drill at jonathanrunman.com. And that's spelled J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-R-U-N-D-M-A-N. Our question of the week is, what piece of music of yours has had the most success and why? Chime in at forum.composerquest.com. I'll leave you now with part of Jonathan's song, Second Shelf Down, probably my favorite from his new album, Look Up.
There's a bottle filled with water from the ocean 